This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The basic concept of the three Ps is a strategy concept. And the idea is if you're going to tackle any complex problem, you have to figure out a way to make it ruthlessly simple. And so you've got to step back and in three pages or three PowerPoint slides, tell me one sentence of the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish, up to five principles of how you're going to accomplish that, and at most five priorities, which are the things you're actually going to do. And I think the lesson for me in it through the, the ups and downs was if you surround yourself with great talent, you have to let the talent be great. Right. And you have to be humble enough to know that you're a great talent yourself, but only in certain ways. Yep. What you learn from that. And trust me, it'll happen to you at some point in your personal and professional life. It just will. Maybe three or four times. Is you learn perseverance. And you just learn that you have to get through. Right. And you have to pick up the pieces, learn what you can, and you got to move on. The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. Quarter of a million dollars, it was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve the problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. All right, welcome to the third installment of the 2017 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. So we have tonight with us Robbie Bach. We bring a lot of entrepreneurs into this classroom, people that started companies um, maybe with little to no resources, um, and we don't bring in enough entrepreneurs, people that do much the same thing but they do it within a larger organization. Now that larger organization might have a lot of money, but that doesn't mean it's all gonna flow to you. So you have to be very wily and creative as an entrepreneur, just like you have to be wily and creative as an entrepreneur. You have to be able to make a case for your business, even though your business might be sitting on a lot of dough in the bank, you have to make the right case for that, for that money to flow to you. And that's what Robbie um, has done. So Robbie was, uh, at, <coughs> excuse me, he joined Microsoft in 1988, worked there a little over 22 years. Uh, he had various roles in marketing and as a business leader for a while. He was involved in the Microsoft Office products. You guys are all familiar with those products. They really became to dominate um, that space. In 1999, Robbie was tapped for a very interesting project, and it was actually codenamed Xbox. I don't know how many times a, a product's codename actually became the product name, but they pulled Robbie in and they said, Robbie, we have this crazy idea. We think that maybe we should enter the gaming world, and we think that maybe it should be online, and we think that maybe we'll change the way the world digests and consumes content. What do you think? And he said, I think that's crazy. I'm out of here. No, he said, of course, um, I will take on that challenge. That was in 1999. Um, and as we're going to learn, it wasn't all up and to the right, as it never is in, in real life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Robbie retired at 49. Um, and I, I must make it clear, he retired from working at Microsoft, but he did not retire from wanting to make a difference. He did not retire from making an impact on the world. He calls himself a civic engineer, and I think what he's done is really cool. He's taking, taking the skills and the processes and the strategic 
um, learnings that he, that he earned at Microsoft over 22 years, and he's working with communities, he's written about it, um, he's, he, he sits down with folks and helps them apply those business skills to civic and social problems. We'll talk about a few um, of the um, uh, things that he's worked on. He's also very philanthropic, so I love to bring people into the classroom that have succeeded in business, have succeeded in their personal life, and have also given back to their community. I can't read Robbie's, all of Robbie's um, philanthropic um, endeavors. I'll read some of them to you. Uh, he's, been the, uh, he's been involved with the Boys and Girls Club of America since 2005, and for two of those years, he was chairman of the board. Um, he's involved in the United States Olympic Committee uh, as a board member, and he's been doing that since 2011. He's part of the Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, he's been on the board of directors of that organization since last year, um, and he's also on the board of directors of the Space Needle in his hometown of Seattle, and he's been doing that since 2011. He's also on a number of private boards uh, as, a, as an outside board member. One of those is Sonos, which some of you may be familiar with, a very successful Santa Barbara company that has many um, corollaries with Xbox. So it makes sense that Robbie would have been a really good fit for that organization. It's a hardware tool, but a very software online-reliant uh, business. He's also the author of Xbox Revisited, which um, I know many of you read. Not only does that tell the story of the Xbox and its creation and all the trials and tribulations, but it also talks about Robbie's um, goal <coughs> excuse me, to take those learnings and apply them in a social context, in a civic, civic setting. And those of you that have read the book know that Robbie um, has really been, had done an admirable job of, of balancing his professional and personal lives. In fact, even resigning from Microsoft, resigning from Xbox to save his family life. Um, as we know, he didn't take that resignation. It wasn't accepted by the company. But what that, what that did is it, it allowed him to change his focus and really give more of that energy to his family, which I'm sure he's very happy he did all these years later. But I think even more importantly, it, it changed the culture of his team and it allowed people on his team to take that additional time for their families. And in the end, everybody wins. You have employees that are more motivated, and when they're at work, they're really focused on work, and they're not just hanging around because everybody's still hanging around. Um, I've seen that in action as well. It's much easier said than done, especially for the leader to do it, because you, you're in the back of your mind, you're always worried that maybe productivity is going to go down the tubes as soon as you leave at 5.30 or 6 o'clock. But it doesn't. Let's welcome Robbie to our class. Great to see you. Welcome to UCSB. It's good to be here. Yeah, Santa Barbara's a great place. Santa Barbara's a cool place, and I, I gotta say, as many times as I've been to Santa Barbara for Sonos things and a couple of family things, it's the first time I've been on campus. Mm. It's awesome. It's great. This is the um, beach with a school. Yeah. <laughs> that became apparent as soon as we drove out yes. of campus. We have a killer beach, although I tried to go um, surfing in two-foot waves today, and all the parking places were taken. That's tough. So I'm an angry gotta person get the, right Got to get there earlier. I had to go to another place. <laughs> yeah, got to get there earlier, right. No, one of my favorite quotes is from uh, uh, Mark Templeton, who's going to be here uh, in the spring. He was the CEO of Citrix for many, many years. Yeah. And one of his executives came into his office one day and he said, I want a parking spot. No, I'm sick of walking from the end of the parking lot all the way to my office. I want a parking spot with my name on it. And Mark goes, oh, do you want to park near the front door? Get here early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now get out. Exactly. Well, I want to um, start with um, one of your infamous setbacks. Sure. Um, and that is, because I've been there. Um, you're, you know, you're just launching Xbox. There's a ton of buzz. Like basically, the tech world is looking at you and your team, and you're in this live demo, and you're like totally pumped, and it doesn't turn on. 
and then what was the thing with the with the electronic arts? Uh, the there was a pirate ship, ship that yeah. kept going to ground. I mean, yeah. that sounds like that's cruel so and unusual. The, the, the background <coughs> of that story is, and it, it's sort of part of this strategy thing that you were talking about. We went into the first E3. E3 is the big gaming conference. And this is the first time we're going to show Xbox. And we went into it, honestly, without much of a strategy for how we were going to do it. Right. And literally, I was up at 2 in the morning the night before rewriting my speech for about the fourth time. And I got to the place the next morning, and we were still making changes. Mm. Uh, Products were going in and out of the demo. Companies were agreeing to be in, and then we were saying, no, we don't want to be in. And then they said, well, we changed demoers. I mean, it it was chaos. And our guys came up uh, literally uh, an hour or two before and said, so it's like 6 or 7 in the morning, I don't remember. And they said, hey, you know, we've got the Xbox set up. We can turn it on for the first time. We'll show the splash screen. Mm. First time should have been your key. Well, that was just a complete mistake. This is total rookie hour. Let's do it the second time. This is is amateur hour. So (laughs) we talked about it. I watched it do it. And it was kind of cool. And we were trying so hard to be credible. Right, right. And so I said, okay, what do I do? They said, well, you flip this switch. And so, okay, we, we go. And it's in the first two minutes of my talk. And I go to flip the switch, and nothing happens. Like, literally nothing. Not even a Microsoft blue screen of death came up. I got nada. Yep. And so I've watched the video of it, which is super painful. It's on YouTube if you want to go look oh, at it. Oh, I got to watch that. <laughs> and I just kind of went on. I said, oh, <laughs> as if a, it wasn't supposed to come up. As if it wasn't on. supposed to come up. I just kind of... Ah, well, yeah, right. what's next? And keep talking. And, and then we, we get in our demos, and getting electronic arts on stage with us was super important. Yeah. But I don't know, we got, uh, in deference to the group working on whatever this project was, it never shipped, so it doesn't matter. Uh, we got the C team, for sure. Uh-huh. And this was a product that was a pirate game. Now, boat games are not big games, as it turns out. <laughs> but the guy doing the demo, this guy who ran the group, he got it into a place in a cove, and he couldn't get the ship off the rocks. <laughs> so he's literally slamming his boat. The right. demo was this boat bouncing in and out of the rocks. And that was the entire demo. <laughs> and, you know, so by the time he got done with that, I, you know, after that, after that whole presentation, hour and a half, I went back to my hotel room, and I just said, oh, you know, God, what have we done? Right. And, you know, the ship on the rocks is just the proverbial metaphor for the entire E3. Right, right. Uh, it's the first time we showed Halo, right? You guys all know Halo, right? Who's played Halo? Yeah. Yeah. So, first time, and you think, well, gosh, that must have been awesome. Halo sucked at E3. <laughs> it was terrible. And so, you know, everything right. went wrong. Right. And four months later, we launched. And sometimes that's just the way it works. And to put it in perspective, I mean, that would have been a bad demo for anybody, right? Right. Uh, but to put it in perspective... Everybody was sort of, there was a camp of people that were hoping you would fail. Oh, more and there than a was camp. A, a camp of people that thought you were going to fail. Right. So that just sort of fed both of those camps. Well, and some of those camps were actually <coughs> inside Microsoft. Of course. Which made it even harder. <coughs> yep. So, you know, and, and what, you learn, what you learn from that, and trust me, it'll happen to you at some point in your personal, professional life, it just will, maybe three or four times, is you learn perseverance. And you just learn that you have to get through. Right. And you have to pick up the pieces, learn what you can, and you got to move on. And, no, and I think a- you also, uh, I'll dovetail on that, and you also don't spend a lot of time pointing fingers and throwing tantrums. It's like, yeah, that happened, that sucked. How can we avoid that next time? You, you, you can't point fingers. Right. It's not productive. And look, I'm the one on stage. I made the decisions. Right. I decided. You pushed the button. I, it, literally, I decided <laughs> to push the button. And so you, know, you sort of say, okay, that wasn't our best foot. Let's fix it. Right. 
And, you know, thankfully, the team at that point, and great teams matter hugely, and the team at that point stepped back and said, we're going to fix this. The Bungie team said, we're not showing our product for three months. We'll go fix it. The hardware team figured out what they needed to do, and miraculously, four months later, we, we launched. Nice. Well, you talk about in the book a number of interesting things. One of them is the three Ps, yeah. so purpose, principle, and priorities. If you haven't read the book, I recommend um, you know, getting it on Kindle, getting it at Amazon. <clears throat> Can you talk a little bit about the importance um, of the three Ps, not just in the business world, maybe in a small business context, but also um, in the political world and the civic work that sure. you've been doing? So the basic concept of the three Ps is a strategy concept. And the idea is, if you're going to tackle any complex problem, you have to figure out a way to make it ruthlessly simple. And so you've got to step back, and in three pages or three PowerPoint slides, tell me one sentence of the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish, up to five principles of how you're going to accomplish that, and at most five priorities, which are the things you're actually going to do. Purpose, principles, and priorities. Sounds super easy. Actually, writing a three-pager, doing the three PowerPoint slides, is actually quite difficult. Um, what it does, if you do it well, is it enables everybody to sort of rally around a cause. Right. And enables you to distribute decision-making down in the organization. So I'll give you the perfect example. So Boys and Girls Clubs of America, an organization I'm really passionate about, has 1,150 independently owned and operated franchises. Boys and Girls Clubs of America, the national organization, doesn't operate a single club. Mm. And so we are a franchise-federated organization And we have to convince all the clubs to do the things that we want to do. They're in the process of writing their 2025 plan. Wow. Right. And because it's, you know, it's 1,150 organizations, it's 4 million kids, it's not a, you know, a speedboat, it's a little bit more like a battleship, and you have to kind of turn it. So we have written a three-pager for the future of Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And we are now using that to socialize it with every club in the country. Mm Mm-hmm. And they will in May vote to approve that strategy document. And then what will come from that is an operational plan each year, both at the national level and for every club, that matches to the uh, principles and priorities we've established. And, you know, at the end you measure, and then the next year you come back and say, okay, what do we need to do better? Mm -hmm. And where do we need to do things differently? Mm -hmm. And what it forces you to do, the thing that I think is powerful about it, in particular in nonprofit and civic organizations who have a difficult time talking about hard issues, they have a difficult time having yeah. difficult discussions, is it forces you to have those conversations really early. Because you're talking about principles and priorities. When you, when you have ten things you want to do and you have to decide on five, you force all the hard things on the table right away. Right. And then once you get past that, and everybody sort of accepts it and moves on, then you can actually get stuff done. And so I think... As that, long as you're doing the follow-up and the tying back... Oh, yeah, you, all, you, you absolutely have to do the operational work of, did we do the priorities we said? Yeah. How did we do against yeah. them? Has the situation which, changed? Which I think is, is where somebody like me would struggle. So, like, I read that, and we exchanged emails on this, the 330-300, like, yeah. we wouldn't even have gotten to the third. Like, I think for me, at the small, in our small companies, it was three sentences. It was like, right. survive, uh, let's see, Cash. what else? Survive, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then when we started to really need that kind of strategic development, that's when we knew we were better off selling the business to you know, somebody that knew how to do that stuff. Right. And we'd go off and do the other stuff again. Well, the thing you find, the thing we found in Xbox, which was sort of a start, as you said, an entrepreneurship, sort of a startup inside a big thing, 
And Microsoft didn't use this 3P framework. This mm. wasn't a Microsoft oh, thing. We oh, created oh, this. Oh, oh, okay. So this was an Xbox manufactured thing. There's a Got guy it. named Jay Allard who's uh, yeah, one I'm going to ask you about him. Yeah. And one of the smarter people I know. And this is a little bit of Jay's brainchild. And you know, so when we started to do the 30 pager, we realized there wasn't anybody on the management team who could write it. Ah, okay. So we then had a group of 15 people who wrote that collectively as a group. And it became 80 PowerPoint slides. And then the 300-pager, which is the detailed specification, that was about 3,000 pages. Whoa. Well, the tech guy's Xbox, super complicated. you got hardware, software, yeah. service. Yeah. I mean, by the time you actually are specking right. all that out, it ends up being long. Yep. But the cool thing about it was management team didn't have to do any of that work because it was based on the 3-pager. We knew right. that the right types of things right, were getting right. done. Yep. And decisions moved down. And you gave a roadmap to the people that were writing the SOW or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this is... So, in particular, if you think about civic and government organizations, um, it's a a really good process for them to work through. uh, Because you can't micromanage those kinds of organizations. Well, I had somebody in my office hours right before I came here, and they one of the things they mentioned about your book and that struck them, so I want to make sure I ask you about it, sure. is the rule of three and the rule of five and yeah. how that ties in with the three Ps. And then, and so I'm assuming that also wasn't a Microsoft thing. That was something you guys came up with? Yeah, the threes and fives is, re- is actually more of a Robbie thing, honestly. Okay. A lot of the things, as I talk in the book, weren't Robbie things. They were things I latched onto from other people. But threes and fives is sort of a Robbie thing. I... Um, I learned early in my college career, freshman year of college, that I was a good extemporaneous speaker. And if you're good at that, what you do is somebody gives you a topic and you come up with three things to say, you say them very clearly, you repeat them, and you summarize them. Mm -hmm. And what you discover, if you do it enough, is you realize that people don't remember more than three things anyway. You're lucky if they remember three things. Exactly. And so if I'm trying to communicate something, there's only three things I'm trying to say. Purpose, principles, priorities. Mm. Um, if I'm trying to do something, the other learning I've had in my professional career, if I went and asked some of the students to say, hey, tell me what you're gonna, you want to accomplish in the next six months, you'd inevitably give me a list of seven or eight things, in particular if you work for me. Because we all know that doing more is better. And the thing I would say back to you is, no, you have to give me five. Because I have learned over 20 plus years that people can't possibly get more than five things done. Right. And I have to know that it's the five most important things you're doing. And if you give me a list of eight and you come back and you finish five, I don't know if you've been successful. And, you know, that discipline's hard. I wasn't great at it at Microsoft. I think I've gotten better at it after I left. Mm. I think distance gives you some perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really does help you focus, especially when you have a complex problem where the tendency is to try to overthink it. Or or you have a nonprofit where you want to do everything tomorrow. Exactly. well, Robbie, here's what we want to do. And then you get 25 things, and you're like, okay, you're not going to do all those. So. Well, and people, the problem in a nonprofit is there's people who need to be served. There's a need. People right. are hungry. Yeah. Right, right. People are homeless. Um, kids don't have parents to go to after school. Yep. And you want to serve all of them. My Boys and Girls Club serves 4 million kids after school. There's 15 million that don't get served. So they want to plan to serve 11 million tomorrow, and that just doesn't work. Right. And so you have to figure out prioritize, get started, grow, and then make progress. Yep, quantify those goals and then define how you're going to get to them. And Absolutely. So I'm going to go to a student question after my next one, so if you can uh, get ready. So you mentioned um, Mr. Allard. Yeah. Um, for those of you that haven't read the book yet, um, I don't know, how would you describe him? Green hair? Is that what you said? He... Jay, well, when he had hair, when I first met Jay, he had hair, and he would color it. It was sort of 
thin, and he would color it every other week a new color. Oh, okay. So one week could be orange, the next week could be... Did it reflect his mood, or was it... It's unclear. <laughs> um, it's unclear, but it would change. And then about halfway through the Xbox project, he just shaved it all off. Uh. And, and uh, so Jay... So Jay, talk about how you guys collaborated, because you're clearly, I, your hair has never been green. Am I my hair has been combed this way since I was 10. Okay. <laughs> so and, my hair hasn't changed. <laughs> eight for me. Yeah, so my hair hasn't changed. So Jay <coughs> is sort of the anti-Robbie, and I'm the anti-Jay. Um, he's a very smart, technical guy, a visionary who could see around corners. Um, he, Xbox is Jay's creation. Xbox was a social network. Before MySpace was developed, mm, right? You know, so Jay has this just this incredible way to look at a problem and think around the corner. No, we're not going to argue about what high definition DVD drive to put in Xbox. We don't care because people are going to be streaming movies. Mm. So let's put a standard def DVD, save money, and figure out how to help people stream on Xbox Live. And we, you know, he's having that discussion in 2003. Mm-hmm. Netflix is doing mail order at yep, that time. Yep, still mailing disc. Yeah, so that's the kind of person he was. And yet, you know, was he a great communicator? Was he a structured manager? Not particularly. Um, was he kind of constantly moving in three or four different directions? Yeah, he was. Um, and so what we figured out how to do, you know, I, I say in the book, and this is absolutely true, I wanted to fire him two or three times. And he tried to quit two or three times. Mm-hmm. And what we figured out over time is that there was a yin and yang in the way we had to work. Right. And we had to figure out which one of us had which superpowers and focus on those. Yep. Um, you know, when it came to talking to publishers, I mostly did the work. That wasn't Jay's. The publishers frustrated Jay. Mm-hmm. When it came to talking about software architecture, I might go to one meeting in a year on that. And Jay did that. And I really allowed him to do what he needed to do. And I think the lesson for me in it through the, the ups and downs was if you surround yourself with great talent, you have to let the talent be great. Right. And you have to be humble enough to know that you're a great talent yourself, but only in certain ways. Yep. And be able to backfill. I talk about people, I talk about being like the Avengers. And you've got to know your superpower. And you've got to know your kryptonite. I know I cross comic strip things there, so sorry. <laughs> um, Come on, you're a gaming guy. Yeah, I know. I should know, I should know better. But you've got to know your superpower and your kryptonite. Yeah. And Jay was the solution to my kryptonite. And I had superpowers that Jay couldn't have. But it's easy to say this, and much harder to do. I had Stacy Peralta last week. Pal Peralta created the world's largest skateboard company. Very different people. Right. And they had their yin and yang moments. So I think the message for a younger person is, I mean, yes, it's easy to hear these things. It's going to be hard to do them. Totally. If you're not in conflict at some level with that other person, then you're probably too much like them. And there's been a lot of research done on this. Uh, homogeneous groups tend to make decisions more quickly and more efficiently, but their decisions aren't better. So In fact, they're usually worse. They're worse. So you have to deal, so the trade-off is, gosh, it's going to be harder, but I'm going to end up with better decisions. I'm going to end up, at the end of the day, getting challenged, rightfully so, and having to substantiate my position. Totally right. Yep. And it's hard to do, because believe me, I just wanted five people like me that just did well, whatever I wanted. Here, here's the thing you, you, have to, you have to really get comfortable with, is you've got to get comfortable with constructive conflict. Yep. I'm a little bit of a conflict avoider by, by nurture, and I had to learn that conflict was okay, and that Jay and I could sit in a conference room and, and argue with each other for two hours, and the outcome of that two-hour argument would be better. Good. Yep. And we'd both walk away with it thinking that things were good, and we both had to be secure enough in our own exactly. places 
to let the argument happen and not feel like we were stupid if it turned out that the other guy was right. And it not break that personal relationship. You have Absolutely. to have the respect. Totally and just right. to be clear, when I say people like me or like you, I don't mean physically. I just mean like they agree with my worldview. Yeah. Right? And not, they think the way you think. Exactly. And they have the same superpowers you have. Right. And then that's when chaos ensues. Totally. I'll take the first student question. So how do you think getting your MBA has helped you in the development of your career? So uh, in undergraduate school, I was an economics major. I thought I wanted to do finance. Um, I went to Morgan Stanley. I discovered, A, that finance was not my superpower. Uh, and, B, I discovered I like to sell things and market things, um, not do the number mm-hmm. work that finance involved. Right. And so I went to business school initially to, frankly, reposition myself and to think of myself in a different way. Mm-hmm. And to change myself from being somebody who was a finance person to somebody who was a sales and marketing person. What I found at business school, and the thing that profoundly changed me at business school, is I discovered I was a general manager, which is actually more than being a salesperson or more than being a marketing person. Mm-hmm. I discovered I liked organizational behavior classes. It may seem kind of weird, but I enjoyed that and learned from it. Um, I discovered that, yes, I did like the sales and marketing work, but I loved the strategy classes. I love the negotiation class, even though I was not very good at it. <laughs> and, and so what you, what, you, what you can learn in a business school, um, to me, is uh, who you are and what new avenues um, you can come up with. Now, some people go to business school because they want to learn certain skills, and I certainly learned some things, most of which I don't use. Right. And that's actually okay. It's part of the process, and there's no problem with that. You know, if you ask me to do cost accounting today, I can give you some general principles, but I can't do it. Um, I did fine in that class, mm-hmm. but I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, just like in economics, I was an economics major. You know, doing demand curves is hard for me today, and yep. I can't do calculus. Right. But um, you learn lessons, you apply them, and then you figure out um, who you are as a person. And then you go pursue that for a while and see what happens. And then after four or five years... You step back and you say, okay, four or five years in my career at Microsoft, I step back and said, okay, this is where I am. What mm-hmm. more do I want to do? Mm-hmm. And you make whatever course correction you need to make. Did you, when, I'm just curious, when you were getting your MBA, did you find that in the group meetings, because you, know, you have a ton of group meetings, uh, group projects, I should say, yeah. that you ended up being more of a leader? Is that why you thought you liked to manage? Or? Yeah, I think the thing, the thing that's a little challenging in the business school environment is there's a lot of high-quality people, so there are a lot of people who come in thinking they're leaders. Yep. And I certainly was one of those people, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that's just who I, who I thought I was. And so oftentimes I would find myself leading. But more what I found myself doing was a little less leading and directing and a little bit more trying to find the idea that this person had and mm. match it to the idea that this person had mm-hmm. and try to make that into something that was more than the individual ideas. Mm-hmm. And so... I always tell people, when, you know, when I, Microsoft is a place that hired for IQ. And I don't know how I got over the bar because there, most of the people there were way smarter than I was. But I was better at finding the people at high IQ and bringing ideas together mm-hmm. and putting those things into a new way. And that's what I mean by general management is, yes. you know, how you take somebody from sales and marketing and development and come together with an idea like an Xbox or even things that fail like a Zoom. Right. Well, I, I found, uh, I got my MBA too, and I generally tell students don't bother, but, th- what, but, that's, but I'm an entrepreneur. It's different, right? It's, it's a different skill set. What, what, what I did get out of um, 
going to getting my MBA was with the group projects. Yeah. I hated them because they're, as you say, they're all these super high achievers. They're all super <laughs> smart people. But, I, but once I graduated and left, I realized that was the most valuable part of the experience for me because at a startup, you can't order people around. Right. Like it's, I'm not the boss, even though I might be the boss. Like if I want to hire unbelievable people that are going to do unbelievable things, I can't just tell them what to do. Well, it goes and what I was we like, said this be- is like Wharton all over again. Like, it's horrible. <laughs> well, it's, it's what we said before about figuring out the team to surround yourself with right. a team that's you know, not the same. You can't tell those people what to no. do. No, it's a fantasy that you're going to sit back in on. The thing I office. tell people about business school is I tell people, look, if you feel like you have a gap in your knowledge, um, you know, if you were, and I'm not going to pick on anybody, but if you're an anthropology major and you really feel like you need a bunch of business skills, go right. get your business degree. Right. It's a great thing. Um, my son is, has an undergraduate degree in finance from Santa Clara. For him going to business school doesn't make exactly. as much sense. I had an accounting degree. It made no sense. Yeah, so he's, he's working at Accenture, and he's getting his business degree exactly. through Accenture. Yep. And they're paying him. And they're paying him. <laughs> exactly. Double. Exactly. Doubly nice. Yeah. I'm curious about the culture of the Xbox team versus Microsoft. I tried to do deals with Microsoft. It was hard. Yeah. There was a certain culture there. It yeah. was difficult. Yeah. You, on the other hand, that wouldn't have worked. You had to, you had to be collaborative with the game manufacturers, with the content providers once, once streaming became an issue. So yeah. you had a lot of constituents that you needed to partner with. Did you find that you had to change the culture within Xbox? And if so, how did it differ? Yeah, we did. I mean, we started actually pretty early on. It's one of the things we got right from the beginning is we said we can't be Microsoft. And in fact, the first version of Xbox, for all its ugliness, um, did not have the words Microsoft on it. Did that piss off the Microsoft people? It did a bit, um, although we had a very early on meeting called the Valentine's Day Massacre. Mm-hmm. Today is Valentine's Day, so yeah. I, can, I can tell Nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody, so there's no massacre mm-hmm. today. It's okay. Um, but this was a four-hour fight with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer in the conference, executive conference room at Microsoft that went until 8 or 8.30 at night about really this topic, which was, are we going to use Windows? Are we going to use all oh, the same playbook? Oh. All the playbook from Microsoft or not. And at the end of the day, my team, well, it was me in this case, had to say, if you want us to do that, we're not the guys to do it. So we'll just go back to our old jobs. Mm. And then we argued for another hour about what that would mean. And at the end of the day, to their credit, Bill and Steve said, go do it. And do it your way, and we will support you 100%. And they did. And there were other people in the company who didn't like it, and Bill and, Bill and Steve basically told them, hey, you know what, these guys are on a mission, and we're going to support them to get it done. Right. And so it put my job, you know, I was at that point, you know, a 12-year Microsoft guy. So my job was really protecting the team in some respects from the rest of Microsoft. When the mm. central marketing group wanted us to use their ad agency, mm. we said no. Right, right. Microsoft has a great PR agency called Wagner Edstrom. It's done tech PR forever. They're, they're incredibly good. But they're not game PR. Right. They don't do a right. lot of consumer PR, or didn't at that time. So when the company wanted us to use them, we said no. We went and hired somebody else. And my job was to be the buffer with the team. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about partners and publishers, um, the other part of my job was to convince them that we weren't going to act like they thought Microsoft would act. And you know, after the first few meetings, I finally went to the guy who ran our third-party group. This is our head sales guy for working with the publishers, a guy named George Peckham, who's an amazing guy. And I said to George, I said, George, we have to really convince these people. I will come and do two visits a year with every publisher. And I will fly personally to wherever you want to go. And we will go, and I will talk to each and every one of them. 
and we'll lay out our plan. I'll tell them exactly what we're going to do. We're going to be as un-Microsoft as we could possibly be. Mm -hmm. Because our success is their success. And if they make money on Xbox, Xbox will eventually make money. Right. And thankfully, that was a superpower I actually had. And so I did Lord knows how many publisher meetings. But they got used to meeting with me, and then they got to trust George. And once right. they trusted George, right. they didn't even need to meet with me. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon George well, was... And then once they saw that you were gonna, your actions followed your words, then they're like, okay, we're good. We're good. Yeah. And... Um, so, you know, it's, uh, that is a process, and it was conscious. And you have to be really, it's the one part of the culture, I think, that we're actually really good at being thoughtful about. Mm -hmm. The rest we had to fix halfway through, right? which was hard. Good. I'm sure that was hard. To, that, and by that point, Microsoft was one of the most dominant co companies in the world, you know, so it's hard to argue with success sometimes. Right. And, and I mentioned in, in your introduction that you resigned, you tried to resign, I should say, right. in May of 2001. You ended up taking a 10-day, 10-week, excuse me, 10-day, <laughs> 10-week sabbatical. Right. Um, and then came back and it worked. It, talk a little bit about how that sabbatical impacted you and then how it impacted your work style and, the, and your team's work style. So when I, when I tried to, when I resigned, I, I mean, I did send in the letter, right? So it's actually in the book. I found it in my email uh, pile someplace. Um, and I resigned, and my boss said, come and talk to me. We talked about it. He said, ship the product. I've got a way to help you. And uh, he sent myself and uh, ultimately my wife to a couple in Kansas, uh, Jack Fitzpatrick and Ann Francis, who do what I'll roughly call life and executive career coaching. And they helped me really rethink the way I thought of myself as a professional and as a person and as a husband and a family man and helped me put things in the right frame and got out of the head that I, I had to choose between my job and my family. Mm -hmm. And it got me into the head that that's an and statement, job and family. Right. And that if you make conscious choices and you're thoughtful about it and you're disciplined, you can make both of those work. And so, you know, I came back and we did things like, I told the team, I won't take a trip unless it's planned nine months in advance. Which, for everybody, was sort of like, well, we were giving you like four days notice before, <laughs> right, so right. nine months is going to be a little hard to get to, but, you know, that's what we stuck to. Right. Suddenly, I could plan the trips around my family work. My wife knew when I was leaving and when I was going to be back. Yep. We didn't love the travel, but we did it, and the trips were better. They were jam-packed. Yep. I was busy every day. And so things started to come together. And what it enabled me to do and made me realize is that I could, again, be a leader, not a manager. And, that, and after we met with uh, Ann and Jack, I took the sabbatical, you know, sort of let all the dirty water go out to the sea, and came back with a, a fresh perspective that if I was going to do this, I was going to do it right, and I was going to think about it in a different way. And, you know, you don't know how these things are going to work. It was the best 10 years of my professional life. So you started managing, or managing, coaching your daughter's soccer. I was coaching, I, you know, I... I I left meetings in midstream at 5.30 in the evening. Hey, I told you I was going to be done at 5.30. I've got a coach at 6. I'll be back on email at 8. Right. Thank you very much. Drive home safely. And, you know, it took people a little while to sort of scratch their head and say, well, when are we going to make the decision? Well, I, I guess tomorrow. And what happened is people realized that meetings had an end, right. and they had to come prepared. And if they wanted an answer that day, they had to get to the answer. Yeah. And, you know, meetings started to start more on time. People started to have better conversations. We got to answers. And, you know, I was still able to go coach, which I love doing. 
Yep. Well, sometimes and a lot of these folks in the room and watching all over the world haven't worked yet in a professional environment. Sure. What they may not know is it's, you know, the leader sets the tone. Totally. I used to get in super early. That's just my nature. I would make the coffee. But, but then what I found is everybody started coming in early. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you guys don't really have to do that. That's my thing. Right. And by the way, I like it quiet in here, so don't come in early. And then, <laughs> and then people thought they had to stay later. And so what I always told my team was, and I meant it, and, and people learned that I meant it, I don't really care how much you work. I yeah. really don't. Yeah, totally. In fact, I, I don't even want you to come in this weekend, by the way, because you're working too much. I just want you to get your job done. Like, as long as we're making it happen as a team, then I'm happy. Yeah, it, and it's, um, people are, and you'll learn this, you'll be this way when you take your first job. People are incredibly good at taking cues. Yep. They watch what happens in the office, and in a day or two, they figure it out, whatever it is. Same thing happens in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Students come into a classroom, new, new professor, new teacher. They figure it out really fast. And so what you have to recognize is that everything you do communicates. And so you have to start communicating. Yep. And you have to make it really clear to people. And you have to be really thoughtful and conscious about it. And it's part of the thing I was talking about earlier about setting the culture of the place. And the Xbox team worked incredibly hard. I had no issue with how much yeah, work If you hire the right people, they're going to work hard. They're going to work hard. They cared. Right. The only reason that product succeeded is because people cared so much. So that was never the issue. The question was whether we were working smart or not and whether we were using our time efficiently and effectively and whether it was going to lead to people getting divorced in the group. Right. And, you know, I know that sounds dramatic, but that's what happens. Yeah. And people get caught up in their work and they can't get to the rest of their life. And leaders you know, have to set that example. Yep. When I got to that part, I thought that was very admirable because I know it's easier said than done. Well, and, you know, I don't know whether I did it perfectly or not, but it did change the way the team worked. And all you can look at is say, okay, well, there's probably some other things going on, whatever, but, um, and it certainly changed the way I felt about my job. Yep. And like I say, it gave me my 10 best years. And you probably saved some marriages, marriages along the way. Uh, I hope so. We'll take the next student's question. Hi, Robbie. Um, so my question was, as a key component of the expansion and overall success of one of our generation's most influential gaming platforms, have you ever yeah. considered the negative impacts the video games may have? Yeah, come had? on, dude. Yeah, no, she's right. <laughs> I played outside when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so here's the funny thing about that. It's a great question. It and, is a good question. And it's, <laughs> a, it's, and it's real. Um, I don't play video games. I never played video games. I don't like video games. I'm awful at it. The team would never, ever, ever let me demo the product. And if they did, I knew they were trying to make fun of me. <laughs> so that's the, that's the way it worked. Um, but we did have this long discussion about violence and gaming inside the company and, and about sedentary life and the things that it, it means for that. And uh, the company said, wait, this is the Microsoft brand. And you're going to have shooting, violence, Nudity is going to be in the game. Mm-hmm. And it's going to have the Microsoft name on it in some way, shape, or form. How do we feel about that? And, and at the same time, I have my game development team saying, hey, this is, this is art. This is what sells. It, no, well, it, it's partly that, but it wasn't even the selling point they would make. The developer's point was, this is art. It's my First Amendment right to create what I want to create. Mm. And so we literally had this parents' rights versus the First Amendment debate going right. on in the team. Right, right. Which is sort of weird, but it, it's what happened. And we solved that problem by being the first video game console to have parental controls. 
And we said, we're going to have principles, back to that principle word that I used earlier, and two of those principles are going to be parents have the right to be able to manage and know what their kids are playing, and developers have the right to create what they want to create. And we're going to create an ecosystem that values both of those principles. And so we put parental controls in, we marketed it, we talked about it, the rating system mattered, we spent money to support it, um, you know, and you know, lo and behold, seven years, eight years later, nine years later, that system ended up in front of the Supreme Court, one seven to two. Game development is protected free speech today. Mm. What was the game? Um, it didn't matter. The state of California said wanted any game that was rated M, which would be the equivalent of an R-rated movie, to be subject to forced licensing at the checkout counter. Oh, okay. My son wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't have liked that. And um, it went to the Supreme Court, Our, ironically taken there by... Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is just sort of weird if you think about his movies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But one of the things the Supreme Court cited in that decision was that the video game industry had been responsible about creating a great rating system Mm -hmm. and about giving parents the tools they needed to protect their kids. Yep. And so, you know, that's the type of thing you do. The other question I get is about Xbox Live. Oh, everybody's just sitting in front of their screen. Right. And it's isolating. The funny thing is Xbox Live was almost exactly the reverse. It was social. It was for, you could talk to people. In fact, you did talk to people. And people for teams across the world. You know, my son was working in the Netherlands playing against people in other countries. And, you know, so there's all these technology advancements you see. Today you see virtual reality. Virtual reality's got some weird side effects. Yeah. It's got some odd things to it. But it's also an incredibly powerful tool. So in my mind, most of these things aren't good or bad. They are what they are, and you have to find out what's good about them and figure out what's bad about them and decide how to deal with that and really attack it in a proactive way. Texting is good and bad. Right. Um, and I did this virtual reality thing the other day where uh, you'd say, well, virtual reality, kind of goofy, walking around with big goggles, isolating, all those kinds of things. Virtual reality thing I did was I learned how to operate a crane. Now, if you're a company who trains crane operators, virtual reality is brilliant. You don't need a crane. You don't need the person to destroy things in the process of learning. Yep. Super powerful. And you don't need a $2 million simulator. You don't. You need a PC yeah. and an Xbox controller and these glasses. It's you know, maybe $2,500 and $3,000 of equipment. So second Stacy Peralta reference in the, of the evening. Last week he was saying that the, when he started out doing the first, the world's first, in, first action sports videos, mm. actually his company did those, he said the, the, the skill level across the country like exploded overnight because the kids were now able to see the tricks in full motion. Yeah. They could stop them, play them back, reverse them. And so I think what we're seeing with virtual reality, with augmented reality, is this, this acceleration of education. That we're in the middle of it. We don't really feel it right now. But I think people are going to look back. Your crane example is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Like, how could somebody in a third world country that has no access to a crane become a certified crane operator? Well, they can exactly. now because they can just get on there and get certified. Well, and, and the, again, uh, the thing that's powerful about this is um, identifying the things that really matter from the technology. Everybody talks about virtual reality in the video game space. I remain uh, unconvinced how important it's going to be in video games. I really, it's really not clear to me yet. Um, but in enterprise, for businesses, I think it's a goldmine. 
I think there's a lot of money to be made there. And it's no accident that Sony, Facebook, Microsoft, and four or five other people, Samsung, and right. four or five other people are trying to go after that space. And it's not because of the video game market. They may do some things in video games, but that's not where the money is. The money's in business. Yeah. And and I think education. Augmented reality, too. So if I'm same a, thing. If I'm an yeah, air conditioning repair person and I'm on the way up, I'm learning, totally. if I can hold my smartphone in front of a problem on this device and someone else can put an overlay on there showing me what to fix, what is that worth? Wow. If you have to roll another truck with a more experienced person to come show you versus having them circle it with a telestration? You start, I, I spent a dinner with a guy named Alex Kipman, who's the guy who, who leads the HoloLens team at Microsoft, and that's their augmented reality product. And, you know, he sort of, he, he talks about things we're going to be able to do 10 years from now that make my head explode. And some of those may not happen. Alex is sort of a Jay Allard type. He's a little bit a guy around the corner, right. you know, imagining what the world could be. But it does give you hope that there is some real solutions to very hard problems, and, and these kinds of technologies can help us get us there. I want to talk about the civic, your civic role, but I have one more gaming question sure. of the future. What, um, what do you think about eSports? Mm. The, uh, just to be clear, eSports isn't basketball on Xbox. It's people that are professional gamers. You guys know Twitch, and et cetera. These are people that have turned it into a career. There's teams now. I mean, it's getting really big quickly. What, what, are, what is your thought? Well, I think it's real. I, the, the word sport as a, as a, uh, it's a, bad as a tennis player, it, it offends me somehow. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's e-entertainment for sure. Yeah. And they are professionals. And people enjoy watching it. And, you know, it's, it's on TBS or TNT, I forget yeah. which. Right? I mean, well, the Staples Center sold out in 20 minutes. Yeah. They had- so it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. And it's just an example of the way entertainment is changing. I, I always think um, people talk about the music industry and the television industry and the movie industry and the video game industry. Those things are all kind of coming together in interesting ways. Esports is TV. Yep. Um, there's music involved. Um, there's fans. There's a theater. Right? I mean, it's, yep. and yet it's a game. Yep. And it's all those things at the same time. So, look, I, the, uh, I think it's a, it's a real business. It's a real form of entertainment. Um, it's not for everybody, um, but you know, there's, a, there's a market there for sure. Yep, I, I agree. Put in a plug for a company I'm involved with, Mob Crush. They're doing Twitch on mobile. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you can just walk around with your phone and watch and interact with somebody who's playing a game. As you said, all over the world. So gaming has, and I, do like your, I did like your question, gaming has its negative dark side. Too much of anything's bad. But the, the upside is the globalization where you're bringing people together around these consoles. Well, you also just brought up something which I, I just mentioned quickly when we talked about civics. So much of the innovation and so much of the opportunity that happens in these areas like virtual reality or esports isn't in the mainstream of what's happening. It's not, oh, I need to go compete with Activision and Electronic Arts and esports. It's instead the innovation is, you know, if esports is big, there's these three niche areas mm-hmm. over here right. where we can make a lot of money because nobody's going to do anything about those things. So a mobile addition to Twitch is the perfect example yeah. of that, yeah. where that can become a really good business. Somebody will buy it. Maybe Twitch yeah. will buy it. Somebody yeah. else will buy it. And you can make really good money. Yeah. And it's a great way to drive innovation without having to feel like, oh, I have to create the next Facebook. Right. Um, so far, they're doing quite well. I mean, yeah. it's early days, but yeah. uh, the investors certainly like them. They've raised a lot of money at a good valuation. So you, 
ended up taking a 53-hour drive because you had nothing else better to do uh, right around September um, uh, 11th, 2001. Um, and so I know that that, that uh, really had an impact on you. Yeah. I want to point something else um, out that you did during that drive is you journaled, journaled a lot of it. I, I'm, I'm a journalist of my own thoughts. You guys should really think about taking time, if you're not doing it already, to, to write down. Uh, if you can do it every day, it's great. Just start a journal. Mm. <coughs> You'll be amazed when you go back years later and read some of the crazy things you thought at one time. But it actually helps you with your thread in your life, I think, if you can, if you can keep, that, keep that going. Not easy to do, but try it. So you had the journal, you were able to flip back to it all these years later, yeah. and I think that, that led into the, your interest in the, in, the, in the civics of it all. So talk to us a little bit about how you've applied the three Ps, how you've really gone out yeah. there now and said, hey, this worked at Microsoft, let's try to apply it to a really sticky social problem. So, um, so to the three P framework, I have one for myself. And every year I pick it up right about now, so when I go back it's due for its annual uh, examination. Can you I, share it with yeah, us? Yeah, sure. I, I, you know, my purpose is to inspire an army of civic engineers. That's the thing I'm trying to do. Okay. Whether that's by writing, by speaking, by consulting, whatever it is I do. I want to inspire an army of civic engineers. So define for us what is a civic engineer and how can a young person sure. become one? Yeah, so a civic engineer is somebody who um, decides to apply themselves to a problem in their community. Could be local, could be state, could be national, mm -hmm. could be through a government agency, could be through a nonprofit, could be through personal action, could be through volunteering. There's lots of different ways you can be a civic engineer, and it probably changes depending on where you are in your life and do you have kids or not have kids and how all that stuff plays out. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea is that if we mobilize the talent we have in this room, and we said, hey, each one of us is going to become a civic engineer in our own right. Think about the things we could do. Think about the positive impact we could have. And I think sometimes people are, think you have to leave Microsoft to go be a civic engineer. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to start at Microsoft in a time when I, that I could afford to do that. Mm -hmm. But I was volunteering at Boys and Girls Club long before I left Microsoft. I was the chair of the national board while I was launching Xbox. And you just have to, in your list of priorities, again, back to the three Ps, say that engaging in the community matters, and I'm going to do it. And you have to find something you're really passionate about, and then go work on it. And working on it can mean I'm going to volunteer for an hour a week at a food bank. And that's all I can do right now. Mm -hmm. And then five years from now, you say, you know what, I can manage the shift on Saturday at the food bank. And five years after that, they ask you to be on the board at the food bank. And you have success in business, and pretty soon you're the largest donor at the food bank. And suddenly you've changed your community. And that, that's, how this, that's how this stuff works. And unfortunately, um, it happens one person at a time. Uh, the hardest thing for me in my civic engineering work is assessing how I'm having impact. Mm. Because you know, most of my impact happens in, you know, this is a good-sized group for me. Right? So this is, this is a good It's scale. even bigger online. Yeah, well, it's a good scale. And, and so the, the question then becomes, um, how do I get a multiplier effect? How do I make those things happen? Well, if somebody watching this is, wants to learn more or really wants to get involved, is, are there well, things online they should go look there's at? A, there's, a couple, the, there's a couple things. You, I mean, you can certainly go to my website and just read what I write about civic engineering or watch me talk about it. You can certainly do that or you can read the book. Well, those are all good things. But the biggest thing I'd say is um, you don't need my help. You don't need my encouragement. All you need to do is step back and say, what am I passionate about? What do I care about? Is it the environment? Is it education? Is it kids? 
Is it um, you know homelessness? Is it hunger? Is it uh, world relations? You know, you can. The fact that the statement sounds big doesn't mean you can't have an impact on it and can't find a role for yourself to play. And the the funny thing about this is, it's the easiest job in the planet to get accepted at mm-hmm. because you have talent, you have skill. And if you go to somebody in a civic organization, in a government agency, or a nonprofit, and say, "I'd like to help," if they tell you no, then you send an email to me, <laughs> and, and I'll go fix that problem, because they won't tell you no. And they will say, "Well, what are you good at? What do you care about?" And pretty soon, you'll be you'll be doing work. Yep. And it is a, I will tell you, you know, I love what I did at Microsoft. It was rewarding in lots of different ways. I learned a lot from it. Um, <laughs> When I go to a boys and girls club and give a talk, it's the most rewarding thing I do. Well, people, it's, it's, it's been said many times that philanthropy is the most selfish thing you can do. Totally. Because you get so much out of it yourself, that, that feeling of giving and being in a position to give. And, and, and the thing about philanthropy, I'll say, and the reason I don't think of myself as a philanthropist per se, I mean, I, we do give money. And the reason I use civic engineering is because um, it's more than giving money. If you have the money, give it. That's a great thing. It's a form of civic engineering. But to me, the part that I care about, when I talk about inspiring an army of civic engineers, it's the actual on-the-hoof work that you do. I, get, I, you know, I, I have organizations say, Robbie, would you come be on my board? And one of the first things I try to assess is, do they want me to be on the board because of the thought I will bring and the work I will do or because I can give money? Right. And if it's because I can give money, I generally say no. And, you know, politely, but that's not what I want to do. Right. Um, you know, I give, we give money to the Boys and Girls Club, but I put in a lot of hours. Yep. And it's important to me, and, and you know, I hope, it, I hope it has an impact. So find your passion. Yeah, and it's easier to write a check. I know we've got some students sitting here thinking that may not be easy, but it's a lot easier just to give an organization a check. Totally it's a lot easy. harder to give them your expertise and your time. And, and I will tell you that um, while organizations certainly need the money, so if you or others can give the money, it's great. Um, when you come in and really work, that's what people really care about. And by the way, you know, in the Boys and Girls Club case, that's what the kids care about. They want an adult they can look up to. So it's, uh, you know, to me, it's a, it's a powerful, emotive thing. Um, that's why I never say I've retired. Yeah. Because right. I've retired from Microsoft, right. as you correctly said. Right. But, you know, I feel like I have a, a, a second mission. I think it's, it's an, it'd be an interesting experiment for young people at this age. I know I, I did some volunteering when I was in college. Right. And to start doing it at this time in your life, you're not going to write a check, most of you. You're giving your time. Even if you do it on a small basis, you, you might find that that becomes just a part of your life. And I'll give you some examples. If you walk down to the Ivy um, Elementary School here and just said, hey, can I read with some kids that are struggling? Can I just sit next to them while they're trying to figure out hard words and sounding them out? And I don't think they're going to run you off campus. No. Right. I had a group, um, one of my startups, we used to, and it became like one of our favorite monthly activities, we would sort food at the food bank as a team. So maybe you get five, six, ten people, ten of your friends, and it becomes just great camaraderie, you know, you end up having fun, see how much you can sort in an hour. Well, you know, so, perfect example, one of the, I'm a, in, a, uh, in a business with another uh, partner, we make gluten-free pasta called Manini's, fresh gluten-free pasta at Whole Foods. We have, it's, we have all of 15 employees. Um, you know, it's not a big company. Yeah. We lose money. Um, <laughs> Go buy working, pasta. Yeah, we're working on fixing that, but we're losing money today. But 
the uh, assistant to our CEO said, we need to do a team activity. So these are people who make food all day long. Mm. So what did we do? We went and sorted food together as a team at the food bank. Yep. And people had a blast. And they felt so good about themselves after having done that. And it was a powerful thing for the team. Well, and you, well, one thing I got out of it, not just the team activity, was how much need there really is. Oh. You can, you know, we all get in our little worlds, right? We get in our little worlds where we go to the grocery store and buy whatever the hell we want. And you really, it hits you when you realize this is real stuff. Like, this is real food that's going to go to real families that don't have enough to eat otherwise. Yeah. Makes a big difference. Yeah. The other other thing I'll say about this, just in the context of what's going on in the country, and this isn't a political statement. I'm not going to step into that at all. But we are going through a lot of change in the country right now. It is a time of incredible turmoil. So independent of how you feel about the politics of it, Uh, Trump, not Trump, whatever, Republican, Democrat, leave that aside. If you want to have an impact, you can have an impact independent of all of that, amidst all the turmoil. And I have so many people who say, I'm I'm pissed off about what's going on in the country. Does that mean I need to write a check to a Republican or a Democrat? Or does that mean I need to go to some rally? You can do that if you want. It's fine. It's a good way to get, get involved and get engaged. But the simpler thing to do is just go to try to have an impact yourself and fix things with your own hands and get involved in an organization close to you where you can make a difference. And if enough people do that, um, you know, I always say that most change happens locally. And if enough people do right, that, right. the things that happen in Washington, D.C. will matter a lot less. Yeah, and the life skills that this group and people watching will get um, will serve them for the rest of their lives. Oh, Just right. organization, communication, all those good things. So listen, if you guys end up doing, uh, so if you take us up on this, advice let me know i'll let robbie know please do anybody watching i'm pretty easy to get a hold of online it's not hard to find me reach out to me and just we'd love to hear what you did if you went to the ivy school if you went to the food bank if you went to a blood drive whatever yeah if you go to if you go to my website if you want to send me a note about this go to my website click on the contact button go straight to my email tell me something you did so you'll finally get some of that feedback that I, you've no, been I'd, lo- I'd, lo- I'd love to, i'd love to hear it because those stories then enable me to to talk to more people Right. Great. Robbie, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for for having me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.